Hello, everyone. I'm Bill Raggio. I'm a senior fellow at Foundation for Defense of Democracies and editor of FDD's Long War Journal. This is Generation Jihad, and this is episode 63. Uh, today, we have a, a special guest and a friend of mine, Caleb Weiss. He's a senior analyst at the Bridgeway Foundation and a longtime contributor to the Long War Journal. Welcome again, Caleb, to Generation Jihad, and thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Absolutely, man. Yeah. Thank you for having me again. I always love coming back here to talk, you know, whatever the issue of the day is, especially, you know, African jihad. So let's do it. It's fantastic. And Caleb, yeah. you, your, your ability to track what's happening in Africa and then the, the, in Afghanistan and Pakistan and Iraq and Syria, it's, it's incredible. Um, it's, I know you focus on Africa, but I know I can rely on you and so much more. Um, you just follow this in, in a way that is quite impressive. Uh, so thanks again for your hard work. Absolutely. I like to call it my, you know, special nerd ability of, you know, just countless hours on Twitter, <laughs> terminally online. Um, I'm, you know, I'm getting a little older and I'm trying to get away from that. And, uh, I feel a little less nerdy, but boy, when I, you know, talking to other people, I just do, you still realize what a nerd you are (laughs) to get back to work. Um, so today we're, we're going to discuss the recent events related to the jihad in Africa. This theater has been, if you excuse the pun exploding for the past decade, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have made a significant inroads in Africa, particularly in the Sahel, Sub-Saharan Africa, even in Central Africa. Um, but today uh, we're going to look at, at Mali. Uh, we're going to look at Mali and, uh, and separate, uh, Somalia, Benin. Um, we have a lot of current news going on that we're going to do a quick sweep of. And Caleb, I thought no one was better to do this than Caleb. So we woke up this morning to the news that the Malayan government has ordered French-led troops to leave the country immediately. Yesterday, France announced um, that it was it was indeed leaving Mali. Caleb, exactly what's happening here? Give us the background uh, story on the situation in Mali that has led to this um, very strange uh set of circumstances that is going to see France uh, abandon its mission in Mali. Yeah, I would say, you know, most listeners are probably familiar with, you know, French military activity in Mali um, since 2012, or sorry, excuse me, early 2013, uh, when they intervened in Mali to stymie, you know, an Al-Qaeda-led advance across, you know, most of northern Mali and into central Mali. Uh, And really since then, they've been trying to, you know, destroy that insurgency or trying at least uh, it's not been really successful it's kind of just pushed insurgents elsewhere um but the current issues really started happening i would say two years ago um following a coup in august 2020 that removed molly's you know longtime president ibk or ibrahim bubakar keita uh that was you know he was overthrown by a military-led junta that you know nominally established a civilian-led government for a while but that only lasted until you know May 2021, when there was another coup that was led by some of the same people who did the previous coup in August 2020. And since May 2021, I know this is confusing. Your face is <laughs> making it seem like this is confusing. No, Caleb, but... <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be honest here. I, yeah. I just can't get yeah. the Simpsons bit yeah. of a bloodless coup out of my head. Yeah. I, I That's why you see my face. I'm <laughs> trying not to, yeah. to laugh. And uh, I just can't get that out of my head. When you say coup. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, that's it. You had a coup in August, 2020, and then another coup in 2021 led by some of the same people. So a coup within a coup. Uh, and since May, 2021, uh, Mali has been ran by a military junta, especially led by one guy, um, Asimi Goita. He's sort of like the, the president, if you will, of Mali. Um, it's really since his, his reign that the relationship with, with France has kind of taken a huge downward spiral. Um, I mean, the, the brief overview is that France accuses Goita and his, you know, ruling coalition of, of not abiding by some of their promises, especially, you know, paying people, uh, you know, returning to civilian led government corruption, stuff like that. Uh, at the same time, Goita and his ruling coalition is accusing France of not abiding by you know military agreements they signed, not France not doing enough to stymie the jihadist insurgency, not doing enough to support them, um, and then especially late or mid last year when France unilaterally announced that you know they're going to pull back some troops from northern Mali, that really upset 
the the military junta they they accused france of not consulting them on this and really that that's 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 what's happening here this is the backbone of the current crisis is that you have a lot of back and forth between the military junta and france accusing each other of not doing enough or not doing something that's resulted in this um so now you have Mali telling France to formally leave the country, not only France, but also their, their task force Takuba, which task force Takuba was this, or is this, um, you know, military coalition um, with France as kind of the nucleus, but it's European countries um, that operate throughout the Sahel, um, especially in Northern Mali that, that Mali is also requesting they leave. So it's a whole mess based around these two coups that happened over the last two years. Yeah, it's it, these instable, uh, unstable countries. Um, this really fuels the uh, put or throws fuel on the fire of the because these jihadist groups they thrive in this type of environment. The more oh, absolutely, uh, it's it's amazing. So today you had um, the president of Niger, Mohamed Bazoum. He announced uh, that he was going to host those French troops that were going to leave Mali. Uh, is this a positive? Is this a negative? And who who can fill the void, if anyone, um, that void of, of the French-led force inside of Mali? You know, I don't really know if this is a, a positive or a negative. This is kind of like, you know, we had this discussion earlier that Barkhan, the, the overall French operation across the Sahel, has kind of been a mixed bag of, you know, you've had some pros, um, you know, top leadership of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State have been killed. Uh, you know, there's been some degradation of violence in Northern Mali. Um, you know, France has supported some formal government structures in the North, but mainly military structures, such as like joint patrols against various different former rebel groups and rebel groups. Um, but there's a lot of cons to Barkhan that I think, you know, need to be, need to be stressed here. Of, you know, even though they have killed a lot of, you know, top jihadist leaders, you've said numerous times, you and Tom have both said numerous times that, you know, leadership decapitations don't always work. I mean, these are these are organizations that are built to withstand leadership loss. Um, you know, the dispersion of violence. You know, even though that France has you know made northern Mali, Mali relatively safer, it just pushed the jihadists elsewhere into central Mali, into Burkina Faso, into Niger, and elsewhere. Um, you know, you also had France, you know, outsourcing a lot of their missions and operations to communal militias. You know, there was a few pro-government Tuareg militias in the north that France used to rely on that, you know, would do their own fair share of violence against civilians that only made, you know, France's legitimacy worse. Um, so, I mean, these are all going into, you know, the the overall analysis of Barkhan that really it's, it's kind of a mixed bag. So the fact that it's leaving, really the, the question is like, what happens now? And I don't know. And I don't think most people do know. It's, it's, it's going to be a test of whether or not Mali can truly withstand everything that's happening to them without France, without these European support. But, you know, important to note that, like, even though France and their European partners in Takuba have said that they'll leave Mali, they're not necessarily leaving the, the region. Um, you know, as we, as we stated, you know, Niger has, say, has said that they'll host them. Um, France has already had troops in Niger for a long time. Um, there's a base in uh, Niamey, the capital. Um, France also has bases in Senegal, Ivory Coast, and Gabon, I believe. So there are other areas where you know they can potentially host troops. Um, and France has said that they'll you know focus more on Burkina Faso, Niger, and like the the Gulf of Guinea states. So that's Benin, Togo, Ghana, Ivory Coast, where jihadis are now pushing into. Um, so really, it's just you know the future is up in the air. I don't know what's gonna what's gonna happen. Um, it's all going to depend on how well Mali can handle things without France. Um, I don't think France necessarily, you know, is going to lose out on a lot. There's still a lot up in the air that we don't know about future Mali operations. Like, does this preclude France from doing any sort of surgical strike or limited operation in Mali? Um, how does this affect France's relationship with, you know, MINUSMA in Mali, the, the UN peacekeeping force there? You know, just all of these variables that, that go into this that, you know, simply I, it's, it's very unclear at this stage, but basically a recipe for, for disaster. I don't, I kind of have a pessimistic view of what's going to happen, um, but still very, very unclear. Did, uh, can the UN mission there operate safely without the 
French-led peacekeeping force or French-led military force inside of Mali. Does this expose them? Give them make it much more dangerous? They've they've suffered significant casualties. Yeah, I mean it's, it's it's one of if not the deadliest UN post. Um, I would say it's definitely harder for them. You know, I, I don't want to be like you know clear cut on like yes, this is going to be more difficult or this is going to be better. But I think it it it. I, I tend to lean more towards this will be more difficult. If we, you did have joint French and UN bases, you did have France providing support for a lot of MINUSMA. You did have France, French troops operating side by side by MINUSMA. With that gone now, uh, you know, this, I think this does open up MINUSMA for more attacks against it. You know, they will be a, a, a prime, you know, target of opportunity again. Um, you know, unless, you know, something happens with, you know, Malian state and JNIM, the the Al Qaeda you know group there in Mali, I, I, I really think that that the UN might become you know a, a viable target for them again, depending on other things. So yes and no. Again, I, just the whole theme of this is like so much is in the air right now that it, it's really hard to have a definitive answer of what's going to happen. But I don't think anyone really has a you know a you know optimist view here. This is all kind of pessimistic at this point yeah you know the question here you know becomes how does the the malian government deal with this vacuum and there 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 will be a vacuum i mean the french and and allied troops have had a significant presence there the question is is, now do we think is it possible that the malian government goes into so-called peace talks or negotiations with uh, the jihadists operating in central and northern mali yeah, I think there's like probably two scenarios I think that are probably most likely for what Mali does moving forward. And one of them is definitely the the so-called peace talks or peace negotiations or whatever you want to call them. But I, I think we need to be clear here that, you know, JNIM did state, I think maybe two, maybe even three years ago at this point, that provided France does leave Mali, they would technically quote unquote negotiate with the Malian state. So we'll see how that turns out. However, also need to keep in mind of like, what does that actually mean? You've had instances in central Mali already where the Malian state has negotiated with JNIM for, you know, allowing local access to certain towns or areas or like allowing certain militias to maintain arms to protect their communities in return for giving JNIM central control over those areas, enforcing Sharia, all that stuff. So to me, that's what I'm most worried about is, you know, the Malian government does want to see this end. Do they take these peace talks in a way that basically just allows JNIM to consolidate its power? And, and I kind of lead more towards, yes, that's, that's probably what will happen is you'll have more localized, if not a wider agreement that, you know, might protect Mali in some degrees, but really you're just, you're allowing a consolidation of power by this Al-Qaeda group to get what it wants, which is ultimately control and governance. It's their whole point of, of why they operate. Um, you know, and this is something that, you know, the Malians themselves have to decide. Um, I don't necessarily agree with it, but it's certainly another option they could do, which there's been talk, you know, of, of Russian mercenaries or PMCs, whatever you want to call them, uh, especially the, the Wagner group, you know, this nefarious Russian organization that kind of been all over Africa um, and elsewhere. I think the, the the U.S. has finally confirmed that there are hundreds of, of Wagner forces in Mali um, already. Uh, when France left Timbuktu late last year, Wagner allegedly overtook her, or is now in command of the former French base in Timbuktu. You know, I think uh, reliance on Wagner to kind of do some of these former CT missions that France used to do is probably another likelihood that Mali, you know, seeks to implement. Uh, you know, again, I don't, I don't agree with it, but, you know, let's look at this from, from Mali's perspective. If you had this French slash Western military intervention for the past decade that for all intents and purposes really hasn't done what it said it was going to do, which is in the jihadist insurgency. In fact, it's, it's basically metastasized the insurgency to a point where it really was, you know, unsustainable for France. Well, you know, if they look at this, they, they look at, you know, it's not working. We should probably try something else. Who else are they going to turn to? They can't turn to the U.S. because the U.S. supports Barkhane, basically the same you know mo. But you have Russia, especially Wagner, offering a, a viable 
somewhat viable alternative. You know, I, I say viable loosely because you look at what Wagner has done elsewhere in Africa, you know, they're also in CAR where they're basically just in it for mines. They were in Mozambique for a while, but lost a bunch of dudes. They were in Libya supporting Haftar, you know, himself a war criminal. So like not a good group of dudes, but, it, you know, looking at this from a Mali perspective of, of they tried France for a while and it didn't work. So they're left with this, you know, no good option of trying something new. Uh, and I think it's, it's definitely between Wagner, the peace deals or both. And that's, that's what we're looking at moving forward. Yeah. And I, I wonder how does a government like Mali pay for Wagner? There's, you know, is, or is this something that's being funded by the Russians? We don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I have no, I have no idea. In my mind. Is that, a, is that one where Russia will pay for it to gain influence? I mean, I mean that's like, kind of what they're doing in CAR you have like, uh, I mean, not to go into too much detail of the conflict in the Central African Republic or CAR, C-A-R, but there's a violent, you know, civil war happening there. And Wagner, essentially the Russian state, is on the side of the government. But, you know, these these Wagner mercenaries in, in CAR are essentially in it for controlling gold mines and other business deals. They kill civilians. They do all sorts of nasty things, all just to control these mines that inevitably fund the Russian state. So... I, you know, who's to say what's going to happen in Mali? I mean, they do, they do do military operations in CAR and elsewhere, but I'm sure they would do the same in Mali. But the underlying thing here is they would, they would probably find some nefarious way to pay themselves like they're doing elsewhere. Yeah, it's a, it's it's a, it's that is just it's just an interesting uh, aspect of this. How does that? Get, I get it in a country like CAR and, and some other countries. What does Mali have to offer the Russians? Uh, in, unless it's just influence, it's a foothold yeah. in, into the region, which is the only thing I could come up with. No, and I, I mean, I do want to caveat. Like, I definitely do not agree with it. But like, you have to think of this from a Mali perspective. If you had this, you know, foreign military intervention for the past decade and it didn't work, like, what, what do you, what would you, as the leader of Mali, where this has happened, would want to see? You would want to see results, right? So who's who else is promising some sort of result? Well, Russia. Yeah, France has been signaling that it wants to end its or draw down its mission in Africa for several years now. They've been very clear about that. Its commitment looks weak. The U.S. certainly isn't going to intervene. Um, the U.N. can only do so much. The African Union has its hands filled in, in other countries. Um, you know, again, it's I don't support I don't support the presence of, of Wagner in Mali or anywhere else in Africa, but th- they've had some success in in areas where they've been deployed in Syria, I mean, in certainly Libya. Libya. Yeah. Yep. So you know, you, again, we wh- whether we agree with it or not, we can understand the rationale for the Malian government right. to to pivot this way. No, to, absolutely, because they you know not only does the Mali government or any other government for that matter look at you know the the failure of Barkhan, but they look at the success that that Wagner has had. I mean, of course, it wasn't just Wagner that succeeded alone in Libya or Syria. They had other actors helping them. But, you know, to a a state like Mali, they see that as a success. They see that as a viable alternative. Um, So going forward, I think that's something to watch is like how deeply involved does Wagner become, if at all, or do they expand rapidly in Mali? It's it's too soon to say, I think, but Wagner is definitely there and there's there for the the indefinite future, I, I would assume. The, the what, Caleb, the, and I'm not going to get too far afield here. Just make a quick comment. The Western model of counterterrorism with limited brutes on the ground promoting local security forces, be they tribal militias or local or regional militias or or um, or state armies. All it really has done is extended these wars. It's, it's yeah. led to stalemate or slow loss, uh, slow bleed losses. Um, I think the Malian government has has recognized this. I think a lot of countries have recognized this, and they're they're considering something else. I don't, and I, in a way, I can't blame them. No, and like to be clear, there are like certain structural and institutional problems that Mali faces that definitely exacerbates why this conflict happens in the first place. That France or even like the Western model in general doesn't really address. It's a military first approach that thinks about these societal, institutional, structural things second. Um, and not to say that that's, you know, Russia thinks about those either, but like the Western model 
is it's military first. So you're going to focus on these military operations before you do anything else. And that really doesn't do anything that, that, that basically just, you know, gets, gets us to where we are now. If you have a military junta in Mali, that's not going to fix any of the structural problems. It's going to continue the path that was going down before, which just, again, exacerbates the overall conflict. So it's a, it's a huge, you know, I guess shit storm, excuse my language, but that's where we're at. Yes, indeed it is. Uh, I'm Bill Raggio, and this is Generation Jihad. Our guest today is Caleb Weiss. He's a senior analyst at Bridgeway Foundation and a contributor to the Long War Journal and uh, my good friend as well. Thanks again for joining us, Caleb. We're going to pivot to Benin now. Um, last week, uh, jihadists executed uh, two significant attacks in the country. Yeah. Tell us uh, what, what exactly happened and what does this mean for the future of Benin and the, uh, the, the states surrounding it? Yes. Yeah, so I guess technically there was three, depending on how you, well, it depends on how you want to separate it. Because um, it was, it was uh, February 8th, I believe. Could be wrong on that exact date. But you had a, uh, you know, a complicated ambush and ID, you know, assault on park rangers and a French trainer in Benin's Park W, which is like this natural reserve that's sort of near the borders with Burkina Faso and Niger in the country's uh, northeast. Um, but shortly after, there was another IED on basically a Beninese military patrol that was coming to reinforce the, the, the troops in contact, essentially. So there was two. And then two days later, you had another IED uh, in the same park against park rangers. Um, so technically three, but two of them happened relatively close to each other on the same day based around the same event. Um, but either, regardless of that, uh, you know, you've had nine people die last week from, from these three attacks, which is, you know, it, it sucks, you know, nine people dead, but that's, that's pretty large for Benin where the, the brewing uncertainty there has been relatively small. Um, IEDs have only been occurring since, you know, I think late December, which yeah, late December, which really that's a huge escalation from, you know, just jihadists using Benin as like a rear base or like a logistical hub or like somewhere to transit through, to other countries, they're now actively targeting this country. And not only are they targeting Benin, but they're targeting with IEDs, which when the insurgency in Burkina Faso first started, I believe in 2016, early 2017, you didn't see IEDs at first. Like you saw normal assaults, you saw normal ambushes. And then you started started seeing IEDs. And then once the first IED started happening, you started huge, huge deterioration in the country's security. And I don't want to be super alarmist saying that that's exactly what we're going to see in Benin, but the fact that we were having IEDs and we've had three IEDs last week, it's a huge escalation to me. Uh, it does not bode well for the, for the safety of that country. Um, and I've been keeping tabs on, you know, jihadist linked attacks. And most of these are JNIM, if not all of them, JNIM AQs, you know, group in, in, in the Sahel. Um, but really since 2016, which that was March 2016, when JNIM's predecessor group, AQIM, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb did a, you know, a terrorist attack on a, you know, a beach resort in Ivory Coast. Uh, that was the first attack AQ ever did in you know, coastal West Africa. And since then, there's been 30 attacks uh, in, in these littoral states, uh, most of them situated along you know, Ivory Coast and Benin. But that's, most of these 30 have happened within the last year. So this isn't something that, you know, it's been there, kind of residual, um, Excuse me, but it wasn't until last year that it started a huge escalation. It's only got like getting worse at this point. Um, I would say most of these attacks are kind of situated along, you know, natural reserves in both Ivory Coast and Benin, which you know makes sense if you're an insurgent, you're going to use these these natural reserves as your logistical rear bases anyway. Um, but now they're they're actively attacking, um, and especially as violence pushes out of Burkina Faso, which is kind of the the nucleus of JNIM along with Central Mali at this point, if you have JNIM and ISGS to a degree, the Islamic State branch in West Africa, or I guess the Sahel, but they're pushing south from Burkina Faso into their respective areas of Ivory Coast and Benin, and to a lesser extent, Togo. Um, Togo has had one attack, um, I think that was the last November, um, 
and then there's been a few attacks in in Burkina Faso close to the Ghana border. Ghana has been a little bit more secretive with what's happening. There's been recruitment in Ghana. There was a a Ghanaian suicide bomber, JNIM, I believe, last year as well. Um, so like not operational yet in in Ghana, at least to you know open source reporting, but they're definitely there. So this is a huge worry that you know kind of goes into France's decision to reposition across West Africa of like, yeah, we'll leave Mali, but there's all these sort of other problems that we have to deal with now. And one of them is this big jihadist push across littoral West Africa, which depending on if they are successful in opening up these insurgencies in these respective countries, that's a huge escalation from a, a small insurgency that started in Northern Mali. Now you're, you're having an insurgency that literally started in the sands of Northern Mali down to the, the coastline of Ivory Coast. And this is a huge problem that I think deserves more attention. Um, it's getting a little more attention now, but as we see this escalate, it's going to be a lot worse for you know France and its European and even American partners to deal with. Um, I don't really have any optimistic hopes that they will be able to stymie this. I think a lot of the structural problems that go into what's happening in Mali and Burkina Faso and Niger that allowing you know, insurgencies to brew there, some of that is happening in these countries as well. I mean, you do have communal conflict and Northern Benin and you know residual conflict in Ivory Coast, some in Togo, the jihadists can exploit. They can you know work with these marginalized communities, especially uh, the Fulani. The Fulani are you know this large ethnic group across West Africa that that forms basically the crux of some of JNIM's main or most active subgroups. Um, so if they're able to capitalize on some of those grievances or other grievances with the, the local governments, you're going to see a lot more recruitment. You're going to see a lot more you know, I, I guess mobilization of, of people for the jihadist cause. Um, and to be clear, just to, just to throw this out there, Benin does have some problems with bandits, with other criminal organizations in these same parks. Um, so it's important to note that not only are they facing a jihadist threat now, but they, they have had problems with bandits in the past that as the jihadists, you know, operate more in those areas, probably get a little more blurry to distinguish between who's actually doing the attacks, which will make it harder for people like me to keep track of. But it's important to note that, that they do have those residual problems still, um, sort of like northwestern Nigeria, which northwestern Nigeria is a little out of the scope of this conversation. I don't want to get us bogged down with what's happening there. But long story short, there's a huge bandit problem in Northwest Nigeria, but the bandits are somewhat nominally affiliated with jihadists and vice versa. And it's a whole mess. Yeah, Caleb, you identified, you know, you noted the, the use of ID, the introduction of the IED or the improvised explosive device. It certainly is a signal to the, the, the next level of the possible next level of uncertainty. We'll certainly see how this develops in, in Benin. Um, but I can say with certainty, I remember when we started seeing the IEDs going off in Iraq, and then we started to see the IEDs go off in Afghanistan in the early 2000s. Uh, we started then, you know, it switched over. We started to see a suicide attack, and then they just started coming on. The escalation in tactics is something certainly that that tells us that there is a growing insurgency. And you, as you identified, you know, these areas, they went from rear areas or, or logistic hub and, and support hubs. And when they start going into active insurgency, that means there's a lot of things that happen in the background that we don't fully understand. No. And, and I think that's an important point just to, just to hit on it real quick is like to build these support bases, to build these rear bases, they already had to have some sort of social communal con contract with the locals to allow that to happen. So there's already something, you know, political or whatever you want to call it, working behind the scenes that have allowed these groups to be there in the first place, which is, is, is way more difficult to, you know, extinguish than anything militarily alone. So yeah, it's, it's just a huge escalation that, you know, these groups probably been working on for years to allow this to happen. Yeah. And the, now the we're seeing the fruit of it. The decision to flip that switch from support or rear area, however you want to define that, to an active insurgency, that's significant. They're, it's a great risk that they're taking, mm -hmm. and it's one that they a decision they don't make lightly. So I think it tells us to a degree that they have confidence that they believe now is the time to escalate that conflict. Whether they're right making the right calculation or not, we don't know. But we're certainly going to find out, right? We're oh, absolutely. Yeah, we'll, we'll certainly see what happens. Yeah, and it's, yeah, I don't, 
I don't have a good feeling about it, unfortunately. No. And I wish we could put a map up as we're talking about this. One day we'll get over to video and do this. <laughs> but, you know, the, the area that Caleb that Caleb's discussing here in, in um, West Africa, literal Africa, um, the it's, you know, weak borders, you know, uh, relatively weak states with, you know, security holes. This is where when you get if if we do get a security vacuum in Mali, it doesn't just go, well, we could just shore up the borders in the surrounding countries and things will be fine. These borders are fluid. The jihadists know how to transit these borders. They have relationship with criminal groups and bandits, as you had mentioned. And it, it really they have an advantage, particularly in an area like this. I used to always think that nobody could pick out like Waziristan in North and South Waziristan or Pakistan's tribal areas that it was like you know, the heart of darkness, but we're talking about it, you know, Waziristan is like cosmopolitan United States compared to the areas that Caleb is covering here. To an extent. Yeah. Like they're definitely wild. Like I, I would assume the tribals of Pakistan are, are, but it's certainly a viable area for them to operate in. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's turn to, turn to uh, our last topic here, Somalia and Shabab. Um, that Shabab is Al-Qaeda's branch in East Africa, and they're especially strong in um, Somalia as well as in northern Kenya. Um, they've been quite active uh, over the past uh, several year, months, years, days, weeks. Shabab is quite active. Uh, several years ago, a U.S. general said that uh, the command, U.S. commander of AFRICOM or U.S. Uh, Africa command said that 25% of Somalia was under Shabab control. Now, uh, regardless, much that, higher. That's it's, it's so be, much higher. Caleb's giving me the thumbs up. That was yeah. several years ago. That's military's best case estimate. One of the things I'll always say here is when military gives you a number on something that isn't flattering, you can guarantee that you could increase that percentage. That was uh, what two plus years ago. That was yeah, and like and this things is, haven't improved. This is a you know a small point that we don't have to discuss that that much, but I mean just think about it of the amount of territories that they are controlling or influencing, you know, directly controlling or influencing is substantial. I mean, it, it's a, it's a, a significant portion of rural Southern Somalia, a lot of central Somalia. This is, this is an area <laughs> it's way more than 25%. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that requires, you know, thousands of thousands of people. So I also want to say that like, not only are like the, the estimates for their overall areas that they control or influence, well, I would say that the troop estimate that you see a lot, that seven to 12,000 is also right. insanely low. Caleb, uh, if I, I dare I go to Af- Afghanistan, two things that drove me crazy. The estimate of the number of Taliban fighters, because one of the things that, you know, I mapped the con- Taliban's control of districts, that number always had to be far more than what was given. And the dismissal of the control of rural areas. Guess what, folks? The Taliban took control of Afghanistan because they had a lot more troops than we estimated. I don't want to call them Maoists, but I mean, that's typical, you know, Maoist strategy, right? It's the the, the people's war. You start in the the rural areas and you work your way to the urban. Yeah. And and this is we're seeing a very similar dynamic. And I don't think it's an accident. Um, It plays to the strengths of of Shabab. Um, And Shabab is now taking the, you know, has been taking these attacks to the to the heart of Somalia or to the capital of Mogadishu. Caleb, Caleb, there's several attacks last week. Um, You did have an excellent write up about this at the Long War Journal. Uh, Talk about this. What's the significance of these attacks? What's happening here? Yeah, so it was actually just a couple of days ago, um, if not yesterday. The dates are a little blurry for me. Sorry. Oh my God! In, yes, you're in, right. It was in the, the land of that. Yeah. In, in the era of COVID, <laughs> time. First of all, time is a social construct. Time is completely made up, and especially in COVID, time means nothing anymore. Yes. So, anyway, my apologies. but yeah, this so <laughs> huge attack in Mogadishu. Um, essentially, what happened is they, they, I mean, they literally attacked five different areas of Mogadishu and it's like surrounding suburbs which that's you know huge news anywhere else, but kind of didn't get a lot of headlines for some reason. But regardless of that, they attacked five distinct areas of Mogadishu with two suicide bombings uh, and like huge military assaults. So they attacked three areas, uh, two of which with suicide car bombs and then a normal assault, uh, or sorry, they attacked two, two areas with suicide car bombs and a normal military assault. Three other areas were attacked to basically 
prevent reinforcements to going to the bigger attacks. So they targeted military and police troops in these three other areas to basically cut them off or keep them busy focusing on them rather than the the larger attacks. Um, but what they were doing is they were targeting military government uh, government troops, being the the Somali National Army, as well as government officials. They they actually attacked a government official's personal residence. Um, but what they're doing, or why why they did this, they made it very clear in their their claim of responsibility, is this is this is directly related to the ongoing you know parliamentary elections going on in, in Mogadishu, as well as the the upcoming presidential election next week. And they're basically saying that you know how could you have these elections if you can't even secure your capital? And that's that's almost almost random of what they said. Of you know we did this to show that you are you know you're unsecure, you're you're unstable. How can the, the people trust you? And I, I think to you know to a point they to an extent they have a point there. Of you do have you have thousands of troops in Mogadishu. You have you know international community, international you know agencies all focused on Mogadishu, and this group is still able to target highly fortified areas across the capital. Even during this period when international community is insanely focused on Mogadishu for these elections. To me, that says a lot about not only Shabab's capabilities, but you know, kind of, you know, the struggle of securing Mogadishu. You know, it, again, this is a place where the international community has been for what, 30 years now? And it's it's still insanely insecure. The federal government has basically reduced the Klanism. And then you have Shabab taking advantage of all of this. Yeah, and you know, Shabab is able to pull off attacks like this because it has a significant presence in Mogadishu, but it's also using its control of the suburban and or influence and uh, in, in control. Or right, I do want to be careful with that distinction of like yes. what do we mean with control? Sure. I don't really know. There are definitely areas of southern Somalia and central Somalia where they do outright control, right. like their flag is flying, they're they're enforcing Sharia, but there's a lot of areas where they just have you know heavy influence where they may not be physically present, but the local clan, whoever pledges by it to Shabab and therefore that's their local representative representative. Um, but when we say control, that's what I mean. It, yeah. it encompasses both. I don't want to be just assuming they outright control all of these areas because they don't, but they do heavily influence way more than 25% just to have another knock at that little percentage. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and yeah, believe me, no one knows more about the issue of control. That was the hardest thing to do on the Afghanistan map where you knew Shabab, you know, all but flew, or I'm sorry, the Taliban all but flew the flag, but they were collecting the taxes. They were right. taking the pay from the teachers. They were dictating what goes in the schools. They're running right. judges. It's kind of That's the same the soft control or, or influence, however yeah. you want to define that. But it's just as important as that fly the flag. And I would actually argue that that's a, a much more subtle and gives them much more room to operate. No, I, I would assume it gives them more legitimacy too, because like yeah. when you're not out of control and you're allowing the local clans, which I'm assuming this is what the Taliban also did, Shabab looks at Taliban as a as a viable model. But you know, when you have these these areas of influence, what Shabab does is they 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 legitimize, they they weaponize, they they basically uphold this the local clan as their their representatives. They give the local clan whatever they need, money, support, whatever. And then the local clan is basically their government. They they provide taxes or they they give taxes back to Shabab in return for Shabab allows them some autonomy or they don't attack in certain areas or stuff like that. You know, it, it's basically playing a game of you know the clanism of Somalia that the federal government still can't figure out or not willing to go as far as what Shabab does. Yeah, it's it's, it's I, I think that more than over control delegitimizes the federal government because they'll pre- the federal government will pretend that these areas are areas that it controls, but everyone really knows the score. Um, you and one last thing, you mentioned the, the lack of coverage of these attacks. I was thinking about that as we were having this conversation. I mean, yeah, that is big news, and and you know, I I do think the news in Africa definitely gets buried. Unless there's a Western angle on it, for it, instance. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, literally that is the story of, of most African conflicts. Right. So if, if it doesn't include a white person dying, it usually doesn't get. Yeah. Or you know, a white person saying we're going to withdraw troops. Yeah. Right? And that's, that's the sad thing. Like you have hundreds of thousands, well, not hundreds of thousands, but hundreds or thousands of people dying in these conflicts that, you know, hardly get any Western coverage because there isn't a white person involved or some sort of Western involvement. Western. And that's, that's super, I mean, it's, it's, it's messed up. First of all, you know, it's Caleb, you mentioned that I remember seeing, I want to say, and I, I'll apologize if I'm wrong, 
But I remember with the um, as the prison uh, attack was going on in in Syria, I think it was Human Rights Watch. And if I I'm wrong about this, uh, I'll apologize right here. But issues a statement about the state of prisons and this and that. And the only people mentioned are there's Americans there, there's Canadians there, there's Brits there, there's yeah, and it was really so only yeah. Americans, Brits, not the Iraqi prisoners, not the Syrian prisoners, or right? Any other I mean, prisoners that was an HRW else. person, and to be clear, HRW has done good work in in Africa, yeah. but that was a that was quite the take, man. Of like you're completely just weaving out all the local prisoners that are also suffering just as bad as I, as the Westerners, and who probably to degree several degrees of magnitude repre- are represented in those populations. Oh, you know, yeah. and look, Caleb and I are not sympathizing for the hardcore jihadists who fought for the Islamic State. We recognize no, that but don't reduce there. the don't don't reduce yeah. the agency of the locals, man. Yeah, we there's people who have been caught up here. There's children. There's some people who have been were misled into going there because they didn't understand, you know, these are situations that need to be dealt with, but yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, I yeah. think Caleb will, will, will let it go there. You got anything else for us on Africa? Uh, I mean, I think it's important to note, you know, this kind of ties into the lack of coverage overall of, especially Shabab. Shabab doesn't really generate the headlines it used to for whatever reason, but, you know, I've calculated or kept tabs on this uh, for the past three years of Shabab's suicide operations. Uh, and really since January 1st, 2020, they've conducted 62 suicide bombings in that time frame. That is a huge amount of suicide bombings that anywhere else in the world would probably get a lot of coverage on, but it doesn't for some reason. You know, Caleb, yeah. that, that's fascinating. I'm trying to think right now, where have there been in the last year been more suicide attacks? I mean, Afghanistan ended in mid mid August. We haven't seen many there. A couple by the Islamic State. I'm not seeing that level of activity in Iraq or Syria. I don't, you know, that's a that's a significant statistic. Shabab has been underestimated as a threat um, to both the Somali government and the international community, and um, the lack of coverage on this is shocking. I do understand there's a lot going in the world. Russia, Ukraine, with some crazy headlines and predictions that don't fall, come through. Um, the press does, you know, and let's face it, the press is going to ignore Africa, like you said, unless there's a Western angle to it. No, and that's that's the unfortunate truth. Uh, and it, it makes it really difficult to get people to care about Africa. This has kind of been an uphill battle for me, especially of, of you know, people ask me of like, you know, why should we care? Or what can we do? Well, I'm not going to say that we can or should do anything, but you should absolutely care that people are dying <laughs> like that. First of all, dying from these jihadist insurgencies. Second of all, it suggests that like it shouldn't receive the same amount of attention as like a, a conflict in Europe it is absurd to me. Yeah, absolutely. What happens when the next suicide bomber in, oh, I don't know, France comes from Benin or Cote d'Ivoire, right? Like what happens in those cases? Is that what's going to take for people to wake up to the threat? Right. And I, we say this all the time is like, people are not going to care until they have to. And this is the unfortunate truth here now. So, uh, you know, let's see what happens. You know, France has had, you know, kind of the same discussions that, you know, we had here in America about our presence in Afghanistan. A lot of that was happening in France where people just wanted out or people just, you know, they stopped caring. They don't want to be there anymore. Well, they're not going to care until they have to care again. Yeah, it's it's no way to uh, to fight this kind of war. Uh, it's unfortunate. Um, you know, our I, I, I chalk all this up, though, to a lack of leadership and a lack of understanding of what got us into this war to begin with, which was ignoring these threats. Right. And then what got us to this point now is that people, you know, they didn't see an insta solution. I always, uh, well, I don't know if it's a joke, but I always say it, that they want make war. You know, they wanted to pull, <laughs> pull through the drive-thru, yeah, I mean, get these the are gonna, war in a package. You yeah, know. Literally generational conflicts, man. That's why it's yeah. called generation jihad, man. Of You have, what's the famous quote from Zawahri? I'm sure Zawahri is paraphrasing from someone else, but, you know, you think uh, the West thinks in terms of, of elections. We think in terms of generations. Yes. And that's exactly what's happening. That's exactly it. On on that upbeat note, Caleb, <laughs> we will call it a that's day. It. <laughs> <laughs> I hope to have you on soon. We, we will All definitely right. get you back. Sorry for soon. depressing everyone. Listen, Generation Jihad, I think, is should come with a mandatory um, therapy session. Yeah, yeah, therapy and possibly yeah. medication, anti suicide. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, we should actually publish a suicide hotline number in conjunction with this video, uh, with this audio, uh, this podcast. Um, not fun topics, man. It's just, it's, it's all depressing of like, and it does get to you. Like This is not a weird tangent that I'm going to go on. No, go for but it. But like reading and researching and talking about basically the worst of humanity, right? Like these people, like jihadists are not good people. Like they, 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 they torture people, they maim people, they blow each other up. It, it, that does get to you mentally. Uh, and I, I do want to stress that for, you know, potentially other analysts or other researchers of maybe going through the same thing of like, it absolutely does affect your mental health. Uh, just can't tell you how many times of just sitting here randomly in the day and just like an image from like a jihadist video I've seen just pop up, like pops up and it's, just, it's instantly disturbing. And you know, I think, you know, we do as people in this field dealing with extremism and violence and everything, we probably need to take mental health more seriously. Uh, you know, I know I'm going on a weird tangent. No, this is something that needs to be said. Uh, and I think doesn't get enough recognition. Um, so hopefully we as, as a field start to realize that of, you know, secondhand PTSD or like this vicarious trauma is real. Like it absolutely is real. Yeah. We should take I, it more seriously. I, I could not agree. We are human beings, Caleb. We're not robots. We just process this information. I mean, I'll, I'll admit it. After Afghanistan collapsed and I was busy helping people get out of country, both Afghans and American citizens and anyone else who needed to get out. But once that end, once that sort of started to taper down, I'm still working on efforts with that. Boy, I had a, I, I called it a Afghanistan hangover. I want to say it was somewhere around the Christmas holiday. And I just had to do everything I could to pick myself up, go ski and get outside, go hiking, something, anything, and, and step away from it a little bit to realize I've just been in this a little too far, but doing this a long, long time. I, I liken our work to being a homicide detective. Uh, we, it's horrible work, but it's fascinating. At the same time, it's interesting. We're trying to get into the mind of killers. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm purely here by choice. Like, I'm definitely here because I'm fascinated by these people, but it does take a toll mentally for sure. But it, yeah, right. And, and I can't imagine the things that homicide detectives see and the type of people they deal with. It's a, it's got to be a lot like that. And um, now that being said, I'm not on the front lines. I'm not carrying a gun. Um, I'm not in it all the time. No, and like that, um, I think that is. plays into it too, man. Like, kind of have this like guilt of like, should I, as this researcher who's viewing this from thousands of miles away, even feel this way? But I, I think that you know that's kind of you know again, part of my language, but kind of a bullshit thinking, man. Like you are, you are also being affected by this. Like it's okay to feel that you know the secondhand trauma. And you could, you, and that's part of being human. You are, you are being empathetic to this, these other humans that are suffering firsthand. That is you, a normal response of seeing this happen. You are, you are feeling for those other people. It's okay to also feel bad. And I, yes. I, that also needs, needs to be said. They, um, when I was doing embeds with the U.S. military in Iraq uh, and once in Afghanistan, but multiple times in Iraq, that sort of gave me a little bit of that. I'm out there, I'm doing, I'm experiencing, I'm sharing the pain in what little way. Don't get me wrong. I wasn't a soldier there. That was a decade prior, plus prior to that. But um, yeah, it, and there's that. And, you know, you mentioned, you know, one of the things that always bothers me, I realized we kind of went off on a tangent. Here, That's fine. This, all of this needs to be said. Like, yeah. this is, I have no regrets. I'm often accused of hating Pakistan, being a Pakistan hater, right? And because of my reporting on the Pakistani state's support for jihadist groups, right? And meanwhile, I'm the one pointing out that the Pakistani state is responsible for directly responsible by playing its double game of supporting the Taliban, which supports the Pakistani Taliban, which kills Pakistani soldiers and policemen and civilians. And then the Pakistani state still goes back and supports the Afghan Taliban, this wheel of jihad. And like, I don't, I care about those people and watching them needlessly die because their own government is so callous, you know, those things, they, it, it gets to you and, you know, we get, we get called, I'm get called pro-war. I get called, but man, it was up to me. I would, I'd love for this to be my last episode of Generation Jihad and I'll go figure out a new career. I wish we could win this one. These weren't a problem. I think I'm enterprising enough that I can go ahead and, you know, at my age, figure something else out. But the reality is it's still here. Um, and it's because our leadership is bad or our 
that civilian military intelligence. And we're in these situations because our, our leadership doesn't want to recognize that what we are in is indeed a generational war, as you noted. Now, so on that happy note, <laughs> let's call it a day. Yeah. Caleb, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I'm really glad we went there. Um, probably was worth its own podcast. Yeah, I, I kind of want to do like a whole podcast on like the mental health of, yeah. of this, of, you know, the mental health, problems i don't know how to call it but of this field and like the the vicarious trauma and maybe we could have like you know just more than just you and me maybe we could have other people from the field talk about their own struggles but this needs more recognition in the field um i think there was an article maybe a year or two ago about this but other than that there really hasn't been much about like the extremism terrorism research field facing these 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 mental problems that it does need to be out there. What we have to watch, what we have to experience in order for us to put this podcast together, for us to write the articles that we write, is the stuff that we leave on the floor, right, that we don't publish because, frankly, it's too horrific to, for us to reproduce and we don't want everyone to see that. It's, it's yeah, And like I mentioned, there's that like feeling of guilt of like, should I, as someone who lives you know, in Boston, for instance, have this feeling of, of you know, PTSD or trauma? even though like the, what actually happened thousands of miles away in Africa, but no, you absolutely, you're, you're a human. You're feeling empathetic for those people. It's fine. Yep. You are allowed to feel that way. We are human beings. We are not robots. Uh, Caleb, thank you again uh, for joining us. Thanks everyone for, uh, for, for tuning in. Um, just a reminder, you can find us on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Make sure you subscribe and leave us a review, preferably a positive review. If we earned it, Thanks again, and we'll see you soon.